morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at LOPC. And whether you are here in person or on the live stream, it is my absolute joy and privilege to welcome you this morning as we gather for worship, as we celebrate our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and exalt his grace this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we offer you a warm welcome. We hope that you were greeted as you came in, and we hope you were taken over to our welcome center and given what I like to affectionately call our bag of swag. And some information lets you know about us as well as some goodies that are in that that you might enjoy as well. We would love to have you uh, with that. Now, if you're sitting on the end of the aisle, we have a favor to ask of you. Get started the friendship pads. That allows us to know who's here, get to know you. This is for everybody. This is not, we're not singling out visitors here. This is for everyone. Let us know that you're here, pass them down to your neighbor, and that allows us, hopefully, to build a friendship with you. If you want to pull out your bulletins, I'm just going to highlight a couple of different announcements going on in the life of the church. I really want to emphasize this coming Tuesday. Ladies, this one is specifically for you. Our women's ministry is doing a service project to support M&A's disaster relief response. They're going to be assembling what's called flood buckets and hygiene kits. And that is, think about it, for whenever a disaster hits, let's hope the hurricane that's going to be coming up through Florida doesn't hit. That's our prayer. But sometimes it does, right? And people have needs. We're going to be assembling some kits that M&A, and they do a tremendous job with this, will be sending down to whatever area in the country needs them. So ladies, we need volunteers. We need you to help assemble them. That will be in the pavilion this Tuesday afternoon from 1 to 3. Now, in case you didn't hear that, I'll repeat the time. This Tuesday afternoon from 1 to 3, you can contact Lynn folks. Lynn Raise your hand, real, that, that's Lynn. She'll be playing the flute in a few minutes. But she will answer any and every question you have regarding that. So we need, I wish I knew that, what is it? More hands make the, what's, make it, make it easier, make it lighter. Somehow it makes it better. So we just want more hands. I'm forgetting the saying, but we'd like to do that. Speaking of volunteers, we're being blessed with children in our nursery. That's a good thing. Tommy Evans wants to have more volunteers. If you are interested, there's a sign-up sheet out in the narthex. Help us out with that. And then this Friday night, you've seen for the last couple weeks the video, we are really excited that we are going to have Dr. Bishop Dr. Stanley Hote, who is part of a missions organization called Here's Life Africa. And he's going to be here sharing the missions work that they are doing. The Holy Spirit is moving in various parts of the world, Africa being one of them. We are going to be here from 7 to 8 o'clock. We would love to have you come on out and participate with us. And just, it's going to be a great informational time and a great time of fellowship. So we would love to have you join us for that. There are many other announcements. Please read them after the service. That'd be a wonderful thing. So you need to have something to read later on this afternoon. But now let's prepare our hearts for worship this morning.
Lord has called us into his very presence to worship him this morning. As we enter into worship, you notice we go through a set order each week. It's called a liturgy. And the purpose of that is it's not to just kind of go through the same things in a rote manner. It is that we will be shaped by the dominant story in our lives, and that's the story of the gospel. We want the gospel story that begins with God, leads to us confessing our sins, receiving the grace of God, and being sent out. We need to rehearse that over and over and over again. I don't know about you all. I forget it. I forget it every day. I could, you want to join me? We should be worshiping every day to recapitulate and rehearse the gospel story, that that story, not the story of what's going on in our lives, not the story of anything else dominates our life. And this morning, our call to worship is from Psalm 103, verses 1 to 5. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Think about that. Why is David saying forget not all his benefits? Because what do we do? We forget his benefits. And then it says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a giving God. It is part of your holiness. It is part of your otherness that you just give who you are and you share with us who you are. And so, Lord, we bless you this morning May we bless you with all our hearts and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. And may we forget not your benefits. You who forgives us, who heals us, who redeems us, who crowns us, and who satisfies us. Lord, we invoke your presence to join with us this morning as we exalt your holy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let us stand and praise the Lord singing together. Fairest Lord Jesus.
when Isaiah was in the temple and he saw the Lord, it led him to immediately confess his sin. When we see the holiness of God, when we see the otherness of God, when we see the fairest Lord Jesus, it does confront us with our sinfulness. The psalmist says our need of confession is, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. The wording of that to me is so fascinating because he doesn't just sit there and say, Lord, you know my evil. Of course he does. But he says, you know my folly. You know some of the stupid things I do. You know my foolishness. Reminds me so much of Romans chapter 7. When I want to do good, what's there right there with me? The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I hate, guess where I'm going? And we all have those things in our life. The Lord invites us to come clean. It's an, really, it is an invitation to grace. We ought to be running because we'll look in a second at how God responds. We ought to be running to the cross of Jesus Christ. So take a few moments in our personal confession of sin and confess your folly, whatever it looks like in your life, to him. Receive his forgiveness. And in a few moments, we will pray together our corporate confession of sin. Let us pray. Let us pray together. Father, we are sorry for the many times we have left you and chosen to satisfy our own selfish desires. For the times we have hurt the members of our families by refusing to do our share of the family tasks, Father, we have sinned. Forgive us. For the times we were too weak to stand up for what was right and allowed others to suffer because of our cowardice. Father, we have sinned. Forgive us. For the times we refuse to forgive others. Father, we have sinned. Forgive us. And how does God respond to our confession, to our repentance, to our seeking mercy? He does not deal with us according to our sins. Praise God nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friends, if you are trusting in Christ, if you simply receive the gift of salvation, he has taken your guilt. He has taken your folly, all the folly that you just confessed 
He has removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. We have no clue how free we really are. Friends, receive the assurance of pardon. And let's stand and sing of God's amazing grace, My Chains Are Gone.
I'm always caught by just different lines in the hymns and the songs we sing. His mercy reigns. No matter how great our sin is, His mercy triumphs. No matter what our sin is, His grace abounds. And that doesn't encourage us to sin, but it does encourage us to exalt His grace and His mercy. Unending love, amazing grace. So many are suffering today and truly hurting and in need of mercy and in need of grace. Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer. We will pray together the Lord's Prayer and then I will lead us in a time of communion with God. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we do thank you that you are our Father, that you care for us, that you nurture us, that you are with us, that we are never alone. We thank you that you understand and endure with us our afflictions, our trials, our suffering. We thank you that your presence and your power and your comfort is near to us. And there are so many people of our number who are experiencing so many different trials of different kinds. We lift them before you. You know every name, you know every circumstance, you know all that's going on. We think of the Hesse's and we think of the Porters and we think of the Hills. We think of so many more. And we ask that you would be with them. We think of Joel and Janelle Edwards. Lord, I can't name every name, but I thank you that you know them. And I pray your comfort and I pray your mercy and I pray your peace to be with every single person. And Father, I pray for us as a body that no matter where we are right now, no matter what our suffering might be, that we would be a people of hope. I think of the Apostle John whom you gave a glimpse of your new world to. And he said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea, meaning no more turmoil, no more chaos. And you talked about there being a time. You said, there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, for the old order of things has passed away. And then Jesus, you said, I am making all things new. Give us the ability to cultivate hope in our life. That certainly doesn't eliminate suffering, but that we suffer as people with hope. We hope for the new world. We hope for the end of suffering. And our hope is sure because not only of the death of Jesus, but because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus is ruling and reigning and at the right hand of the throne of heaven, 
We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we long for the coming of your kingdom. We believe by faith in your rule and reign and we long and we ache for the fullness and the fruition and the consummation of your rule and reign. So help us to be a people of faith, a people of hope, and a people of love. Equip us to love. Forgive us for our lack of love. Lead us not into the temptation to not love, but to stay safe and to protect ourselves. Deliver us from evil. And Lord, help us to be your people on earth, your body displaying who you are to a watching and waiting world. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The choir would like to invite you um, as we get into this anthem to join us for one of the verses of Holy, Holy, Holy. So if you'll watch, I'll give you a hand motion and have you stand and join in as we praise the Lord together.
did yourselves again. Sometimes I just, now there's something if you make a Presbyterian preacher speechless because I just, all I know to say is, wow. That was absolutely amazing. Praise God. Well, where did we leave our favorite prophet, the man Jonah? He's been to Nineveh. He's preached the gospel. The Ninevites responded. They've seen revival in the city, and this morning, if you want to, if you have Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to Jonah chapter 4. We are going to look at the response of this man, this servant of God, Jonah, and see what we learn, what we glean from that. So Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and illumine our minds and hearts to understand your word and specifically to be changed, to be transformed by your word. We need you. We need you to open our minds and our hearts. We need you to take this word and quicken it to our lives. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want you to pretend, all you college football fans, you're Kirby Smart. And the University of Georgia has just won the national championship. And you go, I knew that would happen. Can you believe it? I knew we would win. Oh, take my life. I can't stand this. I knew this would happen. Or pretend for a second you're at the National Day of Prayer or you're at a mayor's prayer breakfast or something like that. And the response of the governor, government leaders, they're calling for all people and the animals, by the way, 
everywhere is to wear sackcloth and ashes, repent over their sins. And then the preacher, the messenger, the one who's the harbinger of the gospel, is so hopping mad that he wants to even end his own life. He leaves the city, pounces like a spoiled child, and expresses a death wish upon himself. Does this make sense to you? This is the enigma. This is the contradiction of the prophet Jonah. The man of God whose life is filled with such contradictions, such paradoxes, such ironies. In the context of the entirety of the book of Jonah, this is now the sixth episode in the story of Jonah, and it parallels the third episode where Jonah prayed to the Lord from inside the belly of the fish. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And here in verse 2 of chapter 4, we read, And he prayed to the Lord. So Jonah's second prayer, the repetition, is the author's way of saying, Contrast these two. Compare these two. Take a look at them. The first prayer was filled with thanksgiving and praise for God's deliverance, God's grace, God's salvation. Jonah's second prayer exposes Jonah's self-centeredness and hypocrisy. And before we get and kind of go, wait a second, how could this be with Jonah? How could he do this? What do you say we take a look at our own lives? We, remember, we've been saying from the beginning, are you like Jonah? Am I like Jonah? Take a look at our own lives and see the contradictions, the paradoxes, the ironies, and recognizing, and recognize there is much remaining sin still in believers. Jonah is back at square one. We need to recognize that salvation or deliverance from sin the penalty of sin, the power of sin, does not mean we are saved from the presence and the influence of sin. Have you ever felt that you were back at square one, so to speak, in your walk with God, in your relationship with God? This calls us to wrestle with God. Believers are called to wrestle with God. And wrestling with God begins with our being brutally honest with ourself and with God. See, you will not experience the love of God without wrestling with God. I mean, really know it, really experience it. Unless you're brutally honest about your condition, you won't experience the electrifying love of God. Yes, it may still remain kind of a theory, theoretical, placid, just on the kind of the surface of your heart, but it won't energize, it won't electrify, it won't transform. The passage before us is a wrestling match between Jonah and God. It's simple to understand, but the message is simply this. Be aware of the deceit of your own heart in order to know the love of God. What do we learn from this text? We're going to look at it. The outline is very, very simple. Jonah's condition, God's response to Jonah. In other words, our condition, how does God respond to us? Look with me at verse 1. 
but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now remember the immediate context of this statement. Chapter 3 focused on the repentance of the Ninevites. They're turning back to God, God's mercy to them. And here we are in chapter 4, and it's emphasizing Jonah's reaction to the display of God's mercy. Sinclair Ferguson says, how we react is often a better thermometer of our heart than how we act. Jonah did the right thing, but look at his reaction, and it reveals the condition of his heart. A literal rendering of verse 1 reveals the extent of Jonah's anger, just how upset he was. Verse 1 in the Hebrew literally reads, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. The it refers back to the Ninevites turning from their violent ways and their evil actions and God turning from his anger in forgiveness and grace and mercy toward them. What are some lessons that we can learn from Jonah's condition? What are some lessons and how can we apply them to ourselves? First of all, let's not be too hard on Jonah. Because the text does say, and Jonah prayed. That's a good thing. He's turning to the Lord. The first lesson is a lesson for us in how we handle our feelings. So I don't want us to get too hard on poor old Jonah. Let's relax and not be too hard on him because notice how he deals with his feelings. He doesn't stuff them or deny them on the one hand, and he doesn't give in to them and kind of vomit them out, so to speak, on the other hand. See, think about it. How do we typically deal with our feelings, especially our negative emotions of any kind? Tim Keller always likes to say that the gospel is a third way, that it's neither left nor right, and it's not a middle ground. It's a complete third way. So typically, if you look at how we handle our feelings, the first way might be buck up and be strong and deny them and suppress them. You know how it is in churches and how it is and stuff like that. How are you today? I'm fine, of course. Doing great. Um, Do you really know what's going on in anybody's heart then? Maybe you are fine and great. But you kind of have, we'll call that the John Wayne approach to feelings. Deny and suppress. Then the other way might, not sure, but maybe this is the secular way, so to speak, is to give sovereignty over your feelings. In other words, your feelings are really who you are. That, of course, is not true either. See, and we often do both of these in the church. So if we do the deny and suppress in the church, if we're a John, and I'm not bashing John Wayne, by the way, I'm just using that for illustrative purposes. But if we're a John Wayne-type church, is the church a safe place to process your feelings, your negative emotions, your suffering? Or how about even your skepticisms and doubts, your questions about God? If the church is, everybody's great, everybody's fine, and we're doing nothing but denying and suppressing our feelings, Is the church a safe place when you're not great, 
when you're not fine, when you're questioning God, when you're struggling with God. Remember the premise. You must wrestle with God in order to experience for His love to not just be abstract, but to be real in your lives. See, the Scriptures don't let us take either one of the approaches. They don't advocate either approach. As Tim Keller says, they propose a third way. They are a completely unique way and a unique approach to feelings. The Scriptures don't deny feelings on the one hand, nor do they kind of defend them on the other. The Scriptures teach us that we process our feelings in the presence of God. We process our feelings in and through prayer in the presence of God. And Jonah, whose heart's not in a good place, is at least doing that. He is saying to God, I'm not happy with you right now. You want to know how I feel? Let me tell you, it displeased me exceedingly. Talk about raw, real, brutal honesty. And we'll see in a minute how God responds. But let me at the outset show you one way God didn't respond. He didn't smite Jonah, did he here? Verse 1, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Verse 2, lightning struck? I don't think that's what my Bible says. Is that what your Bible says? Jonah at least here is doing the right thing bringing his feelings to God, being honest in the presence of God. Lesson two, know the nature of your heart. Know the true condition of your heart. One of my favorite preachers was the Scottish preacher Robert Murray McChain, who put it, the seeds of all sins are in my heart, and perhaps all the more dangerous that I do not see them. Wow. Be careful if you ever say, I would never do that. Really? You are capable of anything. I am capable of doing anything. That needs to humble us and sober us. Sinclair Ferguson writes, he says, if there is a special danger for professing Christians today, it must certainly be indifference to and ignorance of the true nature of the human heart. How easily outward behavior and established patterns of belief can hide from us the true need we have for a new heart which beats in tune with the heart of God. We have to recognize that even though in the gospel we as Christians have died to the realm and dominion and power of sin, we are still continually under its influence. And the only way for us to deal with our remaining sin is not to tolerate it or simply try to subdue it, but put it to death. Do you believe that you are your own worst enemy? Do you know the nature of your own heart? And the specific ways it manifests itself. What are the specific ways? Because guess what? We're pretty creative when it comes to our true condition. We all respond very differently. Do you know your own heart? How much self-awareness and self-knowledge of yourself do you have? Third lesson, what do we do with our anger? The danger of anger. 
We want what we want. Look with me at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now Jonah is praying, and I'm still going to give him credit. He's processing before before the Lord, but I'm going to be very honest. This is more a complaint than it is a prayer. This is, we want what we want. See, look at what Jonah's doing. First of all, he's defending his previous actions. He is justifying himself. He's saying flat out, this is why I disobeyed you. This is why I was quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew you were a good God, and I didn't want those dirty Ninevites to experience your goodness. Your goodness is just for Israel. Your goodness is not to be shared with those people over there. Jonah wants what he wants, and that is for Israel to be blessed, not for the other nations that he's looking his nose down upon to be blessed. And he's defending his previous actions. He plainly tells the Lord, this is why I didn't listen to you the first time. And then look at this. He says, I fled because of who you are. This is the second aspect of his prayer or complaint. He accuses God. He's protesting about the nature and character of God. He's basically going on to list the attributes of God from Exodus 34. Yes, he's a prophet, and he knows the word of God. But Jonah does not want God to be true to himself. He says, I knew that you were a gracious God, but I'm not happy that you're a gracious God. I knew that you were merciful, that you abound in steadfast love. I knew that you were gentle and lowly, but I'm not happy about that. How has Jonah's sin blinded him? He quotes God's word and his depression, his despondency has blinded him. See, where does anger come from? In the New Testament, James tells us exactly where it comes from. He says, why do we get angry? James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. There it is. You don't get what you want. You don't get your way. It is your desires. We all want what we want. And when that goal, whatever it is we want, is blocked, we get angry. Now, that doesn't always mean we rant and we rave and we throw a temper tantrum and we do that. You know, there is a such thing as called passive aggressiveness. You ever show the cold shoulder to somebody, just kind of shut down? Did you realize that's a form of anger? You're doing that because you didn't get your way. James says you want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, nobody dissects the roots of this, this unrighteous, sinful anger, like Dan Allender and Tremper Longman in their book, The Cry of the Soul. I think it's the best book 
written on the nature of emotions. In it, they write, anger is our response to an assault. Its intensity is usually in accord with the degree of perceived injustice, though the assault need not be real or severe to draw forth an extreme response. Further, if the assault blocks earnest desire or what we believe we must possess in order to be whole, then we will burn with rage. In other words, it is our response to perceived injustice. Something, according to us, doesn't seem right or fair. In other words, in unrighteous anger, we are the ones who determine how things should be. We are the ones who are the determiners of what life ought to look like, of what's fair and what's not fair. Does this sound familiar? This is a little bit of Adam and Eve, you will be like God. What's the essence of God? God determines what's good, what's right, what's fair. We don't. In one sense, the lesson is simple. God is God, and we're not. And guess what? We don't like it. So we get angry. See, in this case, who is standing in the way of Jonah? God. Who's blocking Jonah's goal? God. Who's Jonah angry at? God. Now look at God's response. You're glad I'm not leaving you there, aren't you? Because look at God's response to Jonah. And this is utterly amazing. First of all, it's amazing that God does not give up on Jonah. And friends, God does not give up on you. See, I think deep down we're scared to be honest with God because we're afraid that at some point in time, if we're really brutally honest with God, he's going to say, that's it. You've not changed. You're how old? And you're not getting any better. I'm done with you. Friends, first of all, hear the good news. God never gives up on you. God never gives up on us. God continually, I mean, he's relentless. Maybe we don't want him to be so relentless. Maybe after a while there's a time, okay, God, can you just let me be? I would like to just kind of relax, do my thing, and just kind of chill over here. And God is saying, no, I love you so much, I'm going to continue to pursue you. I am. He is a relentless God. See, and this is amazing grace. See, he's being like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. He is continuing to pursue Jonah, and he continues to pursue us. And what is his method? This is, again, and if we look through the scriptures, this is how God responds and how he acts. He exposes Jonah by asking questions. He actually asks questions. Look with me at verse 4. What is he trying to do? He is getting, he's trying to get Jonah to look at his own heart. He's trying to get Jonah, he's trying to expose to Jonah who he really is. Verse 4, God asks Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Now you can picture Jonah saying, you better believe I do well to be angry. And we will see, we haven't seen the end of the story, but this is God's way of doing things. 
Like, for example, when God met Job in the tornado. The Lord answers Job out of the storm. And he says, and notice his method. He's going to ask Job questions. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? And then I think this is one of the scariest verses in all of the scriptures. God tells Job, brace yourself like a man. I'm not sure I want God telling me to pull up my big boy pants. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little dangerous to me. God's telling Job, brace yourself. I'd be like, "Uh uh-oh, let's run for the hills now. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then he goes on to say, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Picture Job at this point. Uh, let's see. Was I next? No. Uh-uh. I'm in trouble now. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. You're Job. Now, is God discounting, minimizing, diminishing Job's suffering one little bit here? No. God's compassion, care, gentleness, lowliness, goes into Job's suffering 100%, but he doesn't give Job the answer as to its source or reason. See, here's the thing. The problem with Jonah is the same as the problem with Job. They both forgot God and thought that they were innocent sufferers. They thought they knew best how things ought to go. Friends, we have to wrestle with this. We think if God loved me, he would fill in the blank. And the blank is always what we really want. And rarely what we really want is the presence of the Lord, the Lord himself. This is why Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And most of us prosper that like, Okay, it's a means to get what I want. I get that. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he's going to give me, and then we see what our heart really wants. But God is saying, delight yourself in the Lord. Desire the Lord, his presence, his mercy, his characteristics, his attributes, his personal presence. Delight yourself in him when he's your chief desire. You're going to get that. Because when you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. And how is that made possible? Because the only innocent sufferer in the history of the universe was Jesus Christ. Job wasn't necessarily suffering as a consequence of his sin, but that didn't make him an innocent sufferer. Jonah was suffering to some degree as a consequence of his... God told him, take the gospel to this foreign nation. And Jonah didn't want to do that. See, he forgot the mercy that God had just shown him and thought he was an innocent sufferer. See, we have to remember and go back to and understand this in context. We have to see this passage in the light of the end of Jonah 3 that we just looked at where God asks Jonah, have you any right to be angry, especially when... The only one who has a right to be angry is God. And in Jesus Christ, 
His anger has been turned away and turned into favor. All of the anger of God, all of the righteous anger of God was turned upon Jesus Christ as your substitute. So you never, ever have to face the anger of God. You will never face the displeasure of God in a judicial or punitive sense. Will we be disciplined? Of course. God's a father training us. But that is never out of punishment. He's not punishing his children as much as he's training his children. Will it be painful? Yes. Hebrews 12 tells, it'll, tells us it'll be painful. But it is not judicial. It is not punitive. It is done out of love. God's heart, because of Jesus Christ, is turned towards you in favor. His smile is always upon you. We need to recognize the book of Jonah. I, what a brilliant book. It is all about God's love and God's boundless compassion. And friends, we struggle with sin. We struggle with we want what we want. We struggle with our preferences. We get angry because we forget the mercy and love and compassion of God. It always goes back to the gospel. See, God is absolutely amazing. We rant, we rave, we throw temper tantrums. Sometimes, anger is not always directed outward, by the way, towards others. There are a lot of times anger is directed inward towards ourselves. We don't get what we want. We're not better. We're not good enough. We don't measure up. And we get angry at ourselves. And we soothe our souls and we medicate ourselves and we do whatever we have to do dealing with that. It's forgetting the mercy and grace of God. We have to remember. This is why we do what we do in worship. We are recapitulating and we are rehearsing the gospel that tells us it is the good news that God's righteous anger has been turned into favor by the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. That when Jesus Christ was on the cross and he said, it is finished, that means there was no more anger for God for you. It is finished. It has been spent. It has been dealt with. It is done. Friends, remember the mercy of God. Preach the mercy of God to your own soul. I only get you one hour a week. We need to preach the mercy of God to ourselves and to one another all the time. We need to remember it and let it melt our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Jesus truly is the only innocent sufferer. And he suffered for us. He took the wrath and the anger of God upon himself so that we will never have to face your judicial wrath, your judicial anger. Lord, help us to appropriate. I know I need it. Help all of us to appropriate your grace and mercy. Help us to trust your sovereign care, your sovereign will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close our service singing, Jesus Shall Reign.
to the Lord to receive his blessing, the Lord's benediction. And as you receive his grace and his blessing, remember that you are blessed to go and be a blessing to others. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.